and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. And we have the premier, who I think I consider the premier Canadian UFO researcher, Chris Rutelsky, um, Rutelsky on this evening. Uh, this third time he's been on the show. I, I always love our conversations. Um, this is a gentleman that really researches the UFOs and the goings on in Canada. And, um, you know, a lot of the things he has an interest, of course, uh, right across the border here in the United States. But um, again, it's always uh, always really a, a great conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy that this evening. So uh, the blog this week is Otis Carr, the man who patented a saucer. And uh, it's a late 1950s, sort of a contactee era uh, blog that was written by uh, Michael Lauk. And so, and that'll be on as a audio blog later this week. Thank you all that support this show. Uh, we could always use your help. Anyone can support us over at podcastufo.com, and you'll see the support the show link there. Uh, I thank you all, every each and every one of you, for listening. And in YouTube, we'll try to, if you want to um, leave a, uh, what am I trying to say? If you, whoops, hang on just a minute, little technical issue right here taken care of. If you want to ask a question of our guests tonight, we are going to take calls in the last half hour of the show, but feel free to ask questions as we go along here. If something comes up that's pertinent, um, I will ask the question. Uh, please do put the questions in all caps so I catch them. A lot of, uh, a lot of chat come, comes in that I can't always catch. So I think that will do it uh, for now, and we're going to bring in our guest. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to have you here. Yeah, always, uh, always glad to talk to you. And so uh, off air, we had just quick little chat. We might as well talk about it right off the bat. Well, and then we'll, for the person who has never heard you before, I want you to go into your background a little bit. But first of all, um, the question was posed to you from Bill, the uh, radio uh, producer. How is UFOs looked at in Canada versus the U United States? So what's your opinion on that? Well, I think that um, uh, we have to say first off is that uh, Canada is in some ways a little more transparent than the United States, hmm. uh, a little more open to the, uh, the UFO issue. And the reason I say that is actually historically that uh, Canada or the Canadian government has been a little more transparent with regard to uh, investigations and documents than the United States. Uh, for example, in the uh, United States, as everybody knows, you know, Project Blue Book ended about 1969. And uh, after that point, we really have no information up until the recent uh, discovery uh, and the revelations from uh, Leslie Keene and, and so forth from the New York Times and, and then more recently with the Navy uh, videos and so forth, that between 1969 and let's say about 2005, uh, we really had no official recognition that uh, the United States government is involved in UFO investigations or research in any way. Uh, people like Paul Dean, of course, have found uh, numerous documents, you know, between that gap. But for the most part, we really had no information about what was going on with regard to UFO uh, investigations and research at an official level. In Canada, um, we have a complete record from 1947 to the present. Um, the uh, Canadian version of Blue Book, or sort of a spin-off of Blue Book, uh, there were two of them, Project uh, uh, Magnet and Project Second Story. They were sort of in the in the 50s. Um, but after that point, 
the uh, Canadian Air Force, Royal Canadian Air Force, uh, was investigating UFOs, basically following the pattern of what had been done in the United States uh, with the USAF. Um, and after 1969, uh, when the U.S. Uh, terminated Project Blue Book and the Air Force decided there was nothing of scientific value to be gained, um, the Canadian government kept on investigating UFOs. And uh, in fact, uh, what happened was they, the, the Air Force passed along uh, and transferred the responsibility for UFO investigations from the military to the scientific establishment, which is interesting because right. that's what's happening now in the United States. Right. But, um, back in the uh, late 1960s, uh, UFO reports became the uh, you know, responsibility of something called the National Research Council of Canada, which is the best equivalent I could have would be, for example, the Smithsonian. If you can imagine the Smithsonian, uh, became uh, the investigating body for UFOs um, because it had all the scientific expertise and and uh, and so forth. The National Research Council also uh, had a hand um, in space research, and they sort of they had also sort of an equivalent to NASA. So if you can imagine NASA and Smithsonian uh, together, that's what the National Research Council was. In fact, uh, the National Research Council. Um, had sort of blended and, and uh, changed its its focus to the Canadian Space Agency, and that's the uh, scientific body that built the um, Canadarm that you know went up onto the shuttle and and uh, now is part of the space station. So that came from the National Research Council. Now up in, so between 1960, 66, 67, somewhere in there, uh, actually even earlier than that. Um, to 1995, the National Research Council of Canada was investigating and uh, receiving UFOs from uh, official uh, uh, agencies, from RCMP, from National Defense, from civilians, from pilots, and so forth. Um, and so, you know, there was this record of investigations. In fact, as recently as 1994, um, I uh, was going through some documents that I hope to be posting for everybody to see fairly soon. Um, uh, there was an RCMP investigation of a particular case uh, where a woman had, had seen a very unusual UFO and the entire RCMP interrogation of this, uh, of this witness uh, is actually in these files. Mm. The National Research Council of Canada by itself wasn't doing anything like this uh, investigation because they were based in Ottawa. They had a few satellite uh, agencies that were helping them but they realized that a lot of ufos that were being reported turned out to be you know pieces of comets and meteors and, and shooting stars and so forth and they realized the value uh, from its geological standpoint of meteorites and they reasoned that since a lot of the ufos that were being reported in canada you know turned out to be meteors and fireballs that potentially could lead to the discovery of a meteorite on the ground. If you have enough people who see things flying overhead and you can triangulate, you can find the meteorite on the ground. So that's one of the motivations for uh, them to investigate. Uh, but they were sort of they were sort of centralized and they didn't have any uh, you know uh, an army of officers or uh, investigators to go across the country. So what they did is they made a deal with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Mounties, um, because there were detachments just like uh, 
uh, you know, that there are sheriff's offices all across the United States. The RCMP uh, in Canada are more like the FBI, and there's FBI offices throughout the uh, entire uh, United States. So there's detachments of the Mounties all across Canada. And so when a person on the West Coast would see a UFO, uh, they would report it to the National Research Council or to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police would investigate on behalf of the scientists. And conversely, if something's seen on the East Coast or in the North or wherever in whatever city, uh, the RCMP would conduct the investigations and give the information to the National Research Council of Canada. And they actually did uh, track down one meteorite this way. But all the other reports that didn't seem to be um, fireballs and meteors and chunks of comet went into something called the non-meteoric sightings file. You know, they said, well, these aren't meteors. We don't know what these are. Uh, there's something else. And that particular file uh, went into a drawer in uh, the National Research Council in Ottawa. And every year, every calendar year, they would gather all those up and ship them off to the uh, Canadian uh, National Archives, now called Libraries and Archives Canada, where they were made available to the public. So the Canadian public had full access to all the UFO reports made uh, in that year by going down to the National Archives of Canada in Ottawa. And I went down there many times. I you know, got my library card. I had to register and fill out a whole bunch of forms. But I was in Ottawa, and I would go into uh, the archives because I was uh, visiting my astronomy colleagues at the National Research Council of Canada. Uh, and I would look through the, uh, the UFO files. And sometimes I would actually just go right to the National Research Council uh, itself and look in the non-meteoric files because they were... Um, in an office uh, that was uh, associated with some of uh, my colleagues in, uh, uh, in astronomy. And I would look through the, the current year's uh, files as well. So we have this complete record of all the UFOs that were being reported, which is not what was going on in the United States. I mean, certainly civilian investigators were, were compiling these, but these were the, the ones that were being reported by the um, uh, police themselves, pilots, as well as the civilians from a variety of locations and coordinated it all into the same place. Now, there's a second part of that. I mentioned that the, this finished in 1995, but we'll get into that later in the uh, in our discussion. But that kind of answers your question, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Time, but, it, but we did it. Right, right. Thank you. And I know you have an astronomy background. As a matter of fact, you were the president of what was it? At one time? Uh, for a while, I was the president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada's Winnipeg Centre. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so uh, my thing uh, was uh, uh, helping people appreciate the, the wonders of the universe. Uh, you know, during a lunar eclipse, I would pull out the telescopes and set them up in a, in a public park and uh, uh, show people uh, what the lunar eclipse looks like, uh, what the rings of Saturn look like through telescopes, and also did my own research. My background is actually, uh, uh, my bachelor's degree is uh, in uh, astronomy. My master's degree is in education, and I specialize in science education. So for me, um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's cool to uh, translate scientific jargonese and, you know, wade through all the the scientific terminology so that uh, we can better understand what uh, scientists are discovering and promoting and, and so we can understand uh, a little bit more of our place in the universe. Right. And you mentioned Project Blue Book stopped in 1969. I, I personally, well, 
from the people I've talked to over the years, uh, probably think that something was going, some research was going on. It was just kept off the books, so to speak. I would imagine because the phenomenon certainly has not stopped. And, you know, there's people that claim that Project Blue Book was kind of like window dressing. There was something else uh, going on behind the scenes with even, you know, deeper research. I don't know if any of that's true or not. But uh, well, I, I think, think it is. And as a matter of fact, there was a, um, a famous document called the Low Memorandum, um, where it was admitted in, a, in this document, um, which was made public eventually, uh, that uh, the really good cases were not going to Blue Book. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, the low memorandum also suggested that uh, it, the that Blue Book itself was a public relations exercise. Huh. Uh, so mm. you know, there's there is a lot of evidence that uh, there's much more going on. And you know, since the release of uh, some of the material that that came forward from Leslie Keen and uh, her colleagues, and uh, the release of the Navy videos and so forth, uh, we found out that there was a, a, a you know an actual program. Uh, investigating UFOs in the United States between 2007 and 2012. And um, uh, what went on before 2007, we're not entirely sure. Uh, and after that, you know, we're not entirely sure either. But what we do know is that now with the uh, UIP task force, uh, which is actually overdue in some of its reports already, um, that, you know, maybe we're going to find out a little bit more about what's currently being uh, seen and, uh, and, uh, uh, tracked down and reported by, uh, you know, military personnel. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny that our government is talking about, you know, they're talking about looking mostly at the military, you know, because of the data. But still, mm -hmm. I think there's so much that the public can add to this whole thing. And hopefully they'll, you know, they'll get more information than just military. But we'll see how that goes. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, the um, I sympathize um, with the people involved in this because uh, they're looking for instrumented observations. Actually, uh, uh, Avi Loeb, same sort of thing. His project Galileo, they want instrumented observations. They're not really interested in just the average person's firsthand uh, eyewitness account. They want something that uh, is recorded on digital film or radar or whatever um, okay. so that it, we have an accurate uh, understanding of what was seen. Uh, and so a lot of, of the personal eyewitness observations, the average person's uh, UFO reports uh, seem um, uninteresting or, or uh, uh, invalidated perhaps by, by some of this. The Certainly the UFP task force doesn't seem to have any way uh, or mandate to accept reports from the public uh, strictly from uh, you know, high quality, admittedly, uh, witnesses like military personnel. But uh, the problem is that uh, eyewitness uh, reports of objects in the sky have always been a part of uh, UFO and, uh, and now UAP investigations and data. Um, when Sputnik uh, was launched in the 50s, uh, the uh, United States and other countries relied on eyewitness observations from the public uh, to, uh, you know, to, to track whatever the objects were in the sky so they can better understand the orbit. The amateur radio uh, enthusiasts tracked the, uh, the, uh, the signal as it was passing overhead, for example. Um, so that was all civilian uh, in addition to the, to the military. Um, and, you know, even more recently, 
when um, uh, when some of the stealth uh, fighters were being tested uh, right right over the United States, uh, they relied on um, some uh, plane spotters, uh, civilian plane spotters, to you know uh, to record these observations of the. Uh, the jet contrails, the uh, the string of pearls contrails that we're seeing most like most often with, with the stealth fighters, and a better understanding of what uh, was being flown, even though they were classified top secret. A lot of people in the aerospace industry, because of civilian uh, observations, were able to piece piece together what some of these aircraft were capable of doing, and they actually had a, a lot of the, the the specs pretty well worked out for some of the stealth fighters. Uh, be based on eyewitness observations. So, hmm. you know, eyewitness observations are still important um, and give us a good a good uh, a good data set. I mean, people who study the uh, uh, the migration of the monarch butterfly, uh, you know, they rely on civilian uh, ornithologists. Uh, so, not ornithologists, but entomologists. Uh, to uh, to better understand, you know, how many uh, the monarchs are in pr one particular area and and so forth, and you know, bird watchers, same sort of thing. Ornithologists, hummingbirds, uh, greatly, yeah. greatly assisted by uh, yeah. uh, by uh, you know uh, the average bird watcher. So right. you know, eyewitness observations are important, and I I'm hoping that uh, the UAP task force is not going to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right, right. I wanted to show you this. Uh, this someone just sent me today, and I thought it was a great little clip. And I can put this in the show notes too. But uh, it's basically um, jets. This is back in 1952 when the big flap was going on. This is July 29th. It talks all about the flap going on around the Capitol that were seen on radar and things like that. But I thought it was interesting to show uh, this. And this is Fall River, not really that far away from where I am right now, uh, Fall River, Massachusetts. But Anyway, the interesting thing about this is it talks about the military having these new cameras and they're finally going to be able to solve what UFOs are. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So that's back in 1952 and they're talking about being dogged for seven years and now it's about time they're going to be able to show uh, you know what these things are with these new military cameras. So, <laughs> yes, well, I'm sure that's, well, I'm yeah. sure that would be the case. Yeah. <laughs> as we've been told and still get told. And I, I you know, I, I've said on this show a number of times that I don't really believe that in my lifetime it's possible, but I really, I don't have any high hopes that we're going to find out what they are in my lifetime, but it's possible. Mm -hmm. It's very possible, but I think there'll be more questions is what I think it'll be uh, the more we look into it. Uh, so I promised uh, the listeners that you would tell for the person that has never heard um, you know, you on this show before, if you give them a quick uh, nutshell of your background and what got you interested in this topic. Oh, well, that's a, um, the, <laughs> well, I was going to say the short version, but we don't need the short version. We have a lot of time here. Oh, that's true. Um, <laughs> um, no, I, I grew up um, watching, uh, when I was a kid, I remember my parents plopping me down in front of the TV and uh, watching the Mercury and Gemini launches, for example. Hmm. Um, and then in school, I remember the uh, the teacher rolled out a uh, a TV set and watched. We watched Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, I was sort of a product of uh, a child of the space age, I suppose is the term for it. And in um, in the mid 1970s, there was a significant uh, 
uh, flap of UFOs here in Canada that was going on in our particular area. And because I was, I was actually, I think a member of the astronomy club or something like that in high school, uh, very geeky by the way. Um, but, uh, and I remember in the astronomy club, people were talking about what are these UFOs that people are seeing. So, um, I actually, um, you know, was, was curious enough to go out to where some of the UFOs were being reported and talk to some of the, the farmers who had been seeing them over their farmyards. Uh, and then when I got into university and I was taking my astronomy courses, my astronomy profs, um, you know, they weren't crazy about the whole UFO thing. They thought it was all nonsense and people saw them were touched in the head or something. But the phone calls from some of the people who were seeing the UFOs kept coming in uh, to the astronomy office. And my profs are getting a little ticked off at this because, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not something they're interested in. They want to focus on the serious research, you know. And I happened to be in my one of my prof's offices when a phone call came in, and he was so miffed about it. And I said, you know, why don't you just let me take the phone calls? You know, on my my little carol where I'm I'm studying is right around the corner from your office. The next time a call comes in, just let me know, and I'll I'll take the call and I'll talk to it because I wanted to get on the prof's good side. Well, I started talking with more people who had seen UFOs. I uh, went out into the countryside, uh, visiting people in their homes. And uh, for the most part, I could uh, explain most of the UFO reports that were coming in. You know, a lot were stars and planets and, and some aircraft and so forth and satellites. Uh, but there is, you know, some that I didn't, I didn't know what those were. And uh, that was curious. And so I took it upon it, uh, myself as a as a scientific curiosity, a puzzle that had to be solved, um, but I needed more data. So I began investigating and talking to more and more people. And somewhere about, uh, I think it was several months later, uh, there was a, uh, it used to be a departmental meeting in the physics uh, department, which is where astronomy was at the time. Um, and every Friday afternoon, um, I think it was Fridays. Anyways, every once in a while, they had a departmental meeting in the boardroom and somebody with some interesting research, you know, could present it. And usually it was some, one of the profs. Um, and somebody canceled and my prof uh, asked me, you know, would you want to just tell people about the UFOs that you've heard about? And I said, sure, which is very unusual to have an undergraduate student giving a presentation um, at, a, at a graduate level. Uh, but I said, okay. And they had actually advertised, this was a couple of days in advance, and when they advertised it, somebody told the media uh, that there's going to be a talk about UFOs at the university. And the, the morning that I was supposed to give the talk, I was told that it was being moved from the departmental boardroom uh, to the largest lecture hall on campus, which was something like 500 people uh, capacity. And I ended up giving my first lecture on UFOs as an undergraduate student to a packed house, standing room only with TV cameras and, and the whole bit. And after that, I was known as the UFO guy. And that's how I got into the UFO thing. <laughs> you kind of, you, you got, it was by accident. That's why I'm doing this is by accident too. You know, I mean, I, I happen to be out and I had a UFO sighting. I just happened to be out in a certain place at a certain time. And that's why I'm here, really. You know, it's a, someone has a question. I think what 
uh, this person, and please do put the questions in caps um, from now on. So this uh, the person was out in the backyard looking and saw stars and a succession of lights traveling in a straight line, same speed, each blinked out and turned back on. Would that be Starlink? That sure sounds like Starlink. Yeah, they're yeah. really, they've ramped up uh, the number now. And uh, I, I'm not even sure how many uh, they have now, but we're talking, you know, they hope to get eventually 10 or 20,000 of these things up there. <laughs> so that'll be, that'll be fun, huh? UFO oh, reporting yes. <laughs> every five minutes and uh, uh, muddying up the, the real ones can be stealth now with all those. But yeah, well, it is, I, it's actually starting to be a concern for, um, uh, astrophotographers are doing some deep sky uh, photography um, that if you, you know, you just might get it all timed wrong where you'll get a satellite trail right through your beautiful uh, photo of the Orion Nebula or something like that. Oh, no. Yeah, well, that, that could very well happen. I have to tell you, um, what year did you say that there was a flap there? That was 1975. I'm not sure exactly when, but it was sometimes in the 70s or early 80s. Uh, this is a story that a friend of mine told me in um, Montreal. He lived in Montreal, and he and he and I worked on a big appraisal down in Atlanta, Georgia, and that's how I met him to begin with. And and um, I I told him in a conversation that I do a show on UFOs, and he told me the story that he was out um, at a he had a party at his own home. He was out on the deck, and then um, I can't remember if he said a single fighter jet or more than one fighter jets were chasing a disc and uh, everyone saw the whole, everyone, the whole party stopped. Everyone's like, you know, <gasps> like a little bit of mumbling. And then it went back on in a party. And he said, he got up the next day, got the paper right away. He said he couldn't believe there was nothing in the papers. People mm -hmm. had to see it. It was, it was a celebratory, uh, you know, weekend or whatever. I'm not sure exactly what weekend it was, but anyway, had you heard of any stories where fighter jets supposedly were, were trailing? Yeah, I've heard lots of stories like that. Um, mm -hmm. I haven't heard that particular story from Montreal, but you know there there have been many cases like that, both in the United States and Canada. Um, it might even be possible to track that down. And the reason I say that is one of the other things that I I've done is that um, in addition to uh, writing books, um, every year since 1989, um, I've coordinated the Canadian UFO Survey. And what happened was in the, oh, yes. the late, 19, late 1980s, yeah. um, I was frustrated because I, you know, I kept hearing stories from you know all across the country, and some people were saying, you know, the that what they saw was at 11 o'clock at night, and some were saying they saw it at four in the afternoon. I wanted to know, you know, what's the distribution? I mean, are more seen at night than during the day? Uh, what are the colors? Um, does the West Coast have more sightings than the East Coast? Um, so I got in touch with, uh, you know, my colleagues, other, other UFO researchers and uh, ufologists uh, across Canada. Uh, and I said, hey, can we just, you know, coordinate on our data? Let's share our data. I'll put it all into a database and we'll do some analysis and we'll be able to, you know, to do some scientific work. Because I was, you know, back, my, I was putting on my science hat and I want to, you know, do some good science here. So... Um, the uh, uh, the first year, I think we had something like 140, 150 UFO uh, reports that were submitted from all across Canada from all the researchers. Um, the next year, there were more. And uh, but when we did the analysis, you know, we found some basic things that uh, there were more sightings in the summer than the winter, which 
Canada, you know, there's more people looking up outside uh, in the summer than they would be in 40 below in the winter. Um, right. So that kind of made sense. And then we, you know, did some analysis on shapes and and uh, um, uh, duration and what time of day and you know whether uh, whether there was more than one witness that type of thing. It was received very well, and so we did it a second year and then a third year, and um, this past year, in fact, we've released the 2021 data already. Uh, although we didn't put out a news release this year. Um, but uh, we found that there, on average, was about 1,000 UFO reports in Canada uh, over the each year for the past, I don't know, 10 years or so, something like that, maybe a little bit more. Wow. Um, and, you know, we've amassed up until this past year something like 23,000 separate UFO reports, which is more than Blue Book. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. And certainly more than a, a lot of other uh, organizations have. And we've done some basic analyses, and we also made the data available. We've published it every year. Um, the analysis is made uh, available every year. Um, and some uh, of the data has been used by some uh, scientists for other analyses. Um, I, I, we found that um, uh, our UFO data was being used in a, a course on statistics. Um, at a university. Oh. Uh, I re had requests for the data from scientific institutions who wanted to take a look at it. So I think the idea is this is what, you know, is being seen by people. And the reports that we get are not just, you know, things that people phone in on, um, or, uh, or these days email in, but uh, these are reports from the government, from military, from pilots, from uh, something called Transport Canada, which is the Canadian equivalent of the FAA, uh, from, the, as I mentioned, the military, um, and it's all across the entire country. So it's a snapshot of what's being reported in one country in one year. And, um, uh, you know, when we were started doing it, nobody had even uh, thought of it doing it in other countries. Since then, a few other countries have have gone that route and have, have uh, done parallel things. Uh, Peter Davenport's Nash, Nash, National uh, UFO uh, Investigation Center, um, yep. mm -hmm. uh, New Fork. Um, yeah, it, it's a it's a great database. It's all around the world, of course, uh, mostly United States, but certainly does have Canadian cases in there. Uh, we also got cases from uh, MUFON um, and another another other UFO organizations. So it really does gather together as many UFO reports in one year as possible from all the sources. So we think we have a good handle on what people are seeing. And over the course of using all these data, um, you know, 23,000 uh, separate data points, we have a pretty good idea of what people are seeing and, you know, that the time of day uh, are fairly consistent. Uh, but it's also true that um, the population is a really big factor in mm -hmm. that uh, the more population there is in a particular area, the more likely there will be more UFO reports. Yeah. Uh, so the tree falling in the forest in, in reverse. Um, so it, it, it's sort of, if people say, you know, is there a UFO hotspot? Well, I say the, the largest number of UFO sightings comes from the largest city. Does that make mm -hmm. it a hotspot? Or does that mean that just there's you know a lot of people there to be able to see to see UFOs? Um, but 
because we also calculate, um, you know, uh, the, the provinces or the, you know, the states, for example, uh, are there more in provinces in the East Coast versus the West Coast? And it turns out that Canadian provinces with fairly small populations uh, per, um, per capita have more UFO sightings than they should or that they, they ought to. So there's interesting things that come out of this. And uh, it's the type of thing where, you know, we have the data and be nice to be able to say to, uh, you know, some other researchers like the government researchers, hey, hey here's the data. Um, you know, this is what we know about UFOs and this is some of the results that we have. Uh, maybe you can use some of it in your own research. And that has been relatively successful um, and as a matter of fact, I'm not sure if the news made it down in the United States or not, but Canadian politicians have started coming out publicly out of the closet um, regarding yeah. interest in UFOs. I saw something about that, yes. Yeah, and somebody um, filed a um, uh, an access to information request. In Canada, they're not freedom of information requests, they're access to information requests. And somebody filed one because they had heard uh, that uh, the Minister of Defense here in Canada last year in 2021 uh, was briefed on UFOs uh, as to what Canada was doing. So when they filed the request, they were surprised to get um, uh, the set of slides from the PowerPoint presentation that was given to the Minister of Defense. Now, to put this in perspective, yeah. um, just imagine if the Secretary of Defense of the United States was briefed on UFOs. That would be pretty big news, and yeah. it'd be pretty big to get the PowerPoint set uh, that was oh, yes. given to the Secretary of Defense. Well, the the Minister of Defense in Canada was briefed. the uh, The person who filed it did get uh, the uh, the PowerPoint set, and in it was a description of what the Canadian government had been doing, basically what I just talked about at the beginning. And then a little bit later on, it said. Uh, but currently, UFO reports go to Chris Rakowski of Ufology Research. Ah. So the Minister of Defense in Canada was told that I am looking into the UFOs in Canada. <laughs> uh, I think, did you write that on Facebook or something? I saw that I, somewhere. I, 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 I uh, added to it. Somebody else had posted about it, but I, I yeah. had to respond to it. Yeah, it's, yeah. and it's... It's true. I mean, I, I was, I'm the Fox Mulder. There's, uh, there's, there's no question. Yeah. So the resemblance is very striking. Yeah. I know you, you That's know, right. People, yeah. 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 <laughs> Who's Scully? No. Yeah. Uh, so this report that you put out every year, where can someone find that? And what type, I remember when it came out, I remember one of the times anyway, I don't remember the way the time flies by if it was uh, last year or this year, but when, what time of year should they look for that and where do they find it? Normally we, we try to get it out uh, March or April uh, this year uh, because of the pandemic and a few other things. We didn't get it out until May, um, but it's at survey.canadianuforeport.com. Oh, wait, uh, I have to make a correction. Uh, we switched our internet provider. Okay, and, this, is what uh, you, this is what we'll do, if you would. When the show's over, please email that to me, and I'll put it in the yeah. text below, yeah. and I'll also put it in the show notes for the audio listener. Yeah, we have right. to change yeah. the uh, the uh, uh, the uh, URL because uh, 
uh, the provider changed it. So, but actually, survey.canadianuforeport.com actually does get you to the original survey page. So the the previous ones are in there, but the most recent one is at a different site. But uh, okay. you can you can find our data there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I read somewhere now. I don't know if it was this year uh, from last year or not, but it said something like there was a a big increase in in reports. Was that last year? Or was that the year before? That, well, that's curious. It was the year before. It turns out that um, in 2020, uh, when we started compiling the UFO reports, actually even before we were compiling it, during the midst of the pandemic, during the first set of lockdowns, we noticed we were getting more UFO reports and more were being filed. And I thought that was a little strange. And when we finally did the analysis, because we have to get the entire year and then we take a few months to work on it, so in the early of 2021, we found that the number of reports for 2020 were significantly higher uh, than uh, 2019. In fact, uh, of the order of 30, 40, 50 percent, uh, depending on the month. So it's mm. very significantly uh, higher. Uh, I mentioned that we have somewhere around a thousand cases uh, per year. Uh, so I think in 2021, uh, uh, sorry, 20 in 2020. Uh, I think we were up to 1,500 or 1,400, something like that. So it was quite significant. Wow. I'll say. Uh, yep. now, however, oh, and so the explanation was, well, because of the pandemic, people are, you know, they can't go out to bars, <laughs> or to parties or whatever. So they're standing around in their backyards and they're looking up and that's why they were seeing more UFOs. Um, well, the trouble is that in 2021, um, you know, the lockdowns were still in effect uh, in a lot of places. Um, but the number of UFO, UFO reports plummeted. In fact, ah. in one of the, in fact, I think it was the uh, almost the uh, the one of the lowest rates of UFO uh, reports on record uh, during the 30 years. Uh, I think we were down to like 700 reports, which I think was um, probably the lowest in at least 20 years, 15 to 20 years or so, something like that. Mm. Um, and so, if the explanation for the increase in 2020 was because of the pandemic, well, the pandemic was still you know, early in 2021, we were still in the midst of the pandemic uh, with a lot of uh, lockdowns. So uh, why was the number of UFO reports uh, so far down? So it's it, called, it, oh, it's pandemic fatigue and they didn't pandemic want to fatigue. Everything, everything was fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is strange, isn't it? Really? It, it is. It, it is curious. Yeah. Um, here's a question in chat and uh, I want to just add to it. What's your opinion on schoolyard UFO sightings, uh, such as the Ariel School Encounter? By the way, that movie is out still. You can still get it, and I highly recommend it. It's a great. Everyone that's watched it, uh, that reaches out to me, tells me how much they love that movie, the Ariel mm -hmm. phenomenon. But anyway, are there any school encounters that you're aware of in Canada? Yeah, there actually are a number of uh, school sightings. I mean. Uh, you know, historically, there have been a lot of schoolyard sightings around the world. There have been a few in Canada that I remember. There's one up in Thompson, Manitoba, uh, in the middle of winter, where kids are playing, uh, having a snowball fight and, and tobogganing and so forth, and a UFO came right over the schoolyard. Mm. With regard to the aerial one, um, I was at the International UFO Congress, trying to remember what year was this now. Was it 2016, 2017? 2017, yeah. I think. And when Emily, um, Emily Trim was there. Emily, Emily yep. was there. Yeah. Um, yep. And uh, I had a chance to talk with her. I heard her story. I was very impressed. Um, it's a fascinating story. Um, I know that um, 
uh, you know, John Mack uh, was, uh, he went down there to investigate. The original investigator was, oh, I can't remember her name now. Um, oh, yes. Hmm. Uh, oh, I'm going blank. Um, She's anyway, in, uh, South a of her in that movie, but I can't remember her yeah, name. Yeah, South African uh, woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, uh, uh, she was the original investigator. Uh, did a really wonderful job. John Mack may have actually led some of the the children in their testimony, so there's some issues with you know in regard to that. Um, uh, and yet, when you do listen to uh, some of the original witnesses, like like Emily, uh, you do get a, a you know a sense that something really profound occurred, um, and uh, you know whether there was some contamination from other students, and some of, some of them may have made some of the stuff up. Emily's story is is very fascinating and very convincing. So uh, I, I think, uh, as with any UFO case, you have to take it all with a grain of sand, but you have to, you know, objectively look at what was reported. And, you know, some of the uh, the, the children, uh, you know, really report something very, very strange that, that had happened to them. Yeah, I think if, if anyone that watches that movie, The Aerial Phenomenon, you're pro- if you are on the fence of, about that before, you may not be after it's just so so convincing to watch mm-hmm. that and you're right about emily she's a very uh, emotional story um, yes. when she told that personally i remember um i was there i think i was helping out there and i believe she got a standing ovation because she was just you, everyone could tell she was so moved um mm-hmm. and it was a real traumatic thing for her to tell her her story yeah and and the fact that it affected her to the point where uh even as an adult now, um, you know, she has vivid dreams and uh, it's inspired mm-hmm. her to make beautiful paintings, uh, spacecapes and so forth. So it's, you know, it changed her life. Um, and uh, when you have cases like that, uh, that, you know, make such an impact on the witnesses' lives, it really does attest to the, uh, to the significance of the phenomena. Now, you're right. When you first where you first started getting all these UFO reports and everyone was coming to you for UFOs and, and all that. Was there any downside to that in your life? Has that, have you ever had to face ridicule for doing this type of research? That's a really good question. Um, one thing that I often hear about is how the media is not paying any attention to, uh, to UFOs and uh, they're, um, they're just ridiculing the whole thing. You know, I, I, I've been doing interviews about UFOs since the 70s, and I would say I can count on one hand the number of interviews that I've done with media that uh, that were farcical. Um, media have treated me with a significant respect um, and have treated it very, very straight. Um, uh, that uh, you know, this is because I'm not I'm not going off uh, like some. Uh, people in in ufology talking about you know alien consciousness and telepathic communication with extraterrestrial galactic federations and you know that type of thing i'm talking about the facts of the matter and the facts are people are reporting ufos some of the people are pilots and air traffic control operators this is what they're reporting we have documents that attest this uh, we know that so many occur in certain months and and, and other months uh, there's different data uh, and I, I treat it very straight. I mean, uh, I, I have fun with it, as you can see behind me, uh, that uh, uh, I have quite a, a huge collection of, of books and, and paraphernalia. 
um, ranging yeah. from ranging from UFO beer uh, to to the actual this way to to the actual uh, Reddit alien um, and uh, close encounters and uh, oh, this way again. Well, I know you know you're realizing you have to point backwards in this. I have to point point backwards. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty funny. Yeah. yeah, people are commenting on uh, your adult toys. They were saying <laughs> at the beginning of this, but yeah, like Alejandro Rojas, he has a lot of stuff like that too. Yeah, and Philip Mantle. Actually, I've uh, given some stuff to Philip Mantle. I shipped some stuff off to him. Uh, he has a huge immense collection, and I've actually started um, scaling down my collection. In fact, <laughs> most of mo you can't see most of the bookcases in this office are, are empty now because um, I've actually begun donating all my files on UFO reports and my books uh, to uh, an archives. Uh, the, uh, an archives at the University of Manitoba asked me one day if I would be interested in donating some of my papers and uh, materials regarding UFOs for preservation. Um, and I thought about it and I thought, well, yeah, you know, not a bad idea because uh, at least I know they're going to go somewhere and that other researchers will be able to use the, the, uh, the material. Uh, and at this point, I've shipped all the books except uh, up, no, up to, I think, the letter S uh, are in archives now. Um, and as far as my UFO files, um, all of the 23,000 UFO files uh, are now actually in the archives. And a, there's a slow process to digitize them. Um, actually, uh, I've been having some uh, assistance in digitizing selected years and selected material. And I actually had hoped uh, by today to, uh, to uh, have a link for people to look at some of the, the, uh, the digitized uh, files. Hasn't, hasn't happened yet, unfortunately. But um, uh, the idea is to make it um, all available. And uh, that's you know, great. This, this is something that, that uh, has been started. Um, you, people are probably aware that Stanton Friedman, after his passing, his family uh, donated his materials to the uh, uh, province of New Brunswick's archives, which is being administered by the university, but it's, a, it's part of the, the government. So Stanton's files on the United States government investigations to UFOs is now being looked after by the Canadian government. Perfect. Um, if you if you can imagine that. Yeah. Uh, and there's been a few other uh, uh, you know good collections that have been uh, made available as well. I think that's great. Dave Marler is has set it up so his mm -hmm. all of his collection his beautiful archives are all going to go to a university as well. Yeah, I just heard that recently. Yep. 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 And everything will be taken care of. It'll all be in archival materials, uh, climate controlled. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. Most people don't have that type of uh, access to that type of equipment, you know, where we're in a home or something like this. Yeah, so, I mean, even the, the archives that mine uh, have donated to, same sort of thing, climate control, white gloves to uh, to handle things and so forth. So uh, it's, uh, it's going to be good. Yeah, yeah. And forever looked after. And when someone needs to do research, it's so much easier to go to a place like, you know, a university and have it all in one location and especially when it's coming in from multiple places in a large archive it's going to attract people that want to do research so sure and barry greenwood and others are are, uh, are working on digitizing uh and that's great material. that makes it so easy yeah, yeah. jan aldrich barry greenwood and uh, yes. uh david marler and a few that's others right. 
They've been mm -hmm. digitizing Isaac Coy. Um, and mine is going to be like that as well. As a matter of fact, the the Libraries and Archives Canada um, collection is available um, online up, up until about 1982 or 81, some, 82, I think. So um, all the UFO reports from the uh, uh, Royal Canadian Air Force, National Research Council of Canada, and uh, a lot of uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police files are available online from 1947 to about 1982. Um, and uh, they digitized it because of the, you know, the public interest in UFOs. Um, some people had said this was disclosure, but it wasn't disclosure. They, they're, they're digitizing a lot of stuff, and they just said, well, a lot of people are interested in UFOs. Let's digitize this. Um, so I think it's something like 9,500, so almost 10,000 uh, separate documents were digitized as part of this project and are currently available. Um, and they, as I understand it, they don't have any plans to go beyond uh, 1982, but I'm working on that myself. Uh, I have a, a, a good chunk of that. Uh, there's some missing years um, because what happened was that the um, the National Research Council in uh, the early 90s decided to get out of the UFO biz. Huh? Uh, and what happened was that um, they were a little embarrassed because in their annual budget, they had a line item uh, for someone to look after the non-meteoric sightings file. So they UFOs were in their their annual budget, the governmental budget, and they thought we probably shouldn't have UFOs in the government budget. Um, just just that's, that's for too bad. Yeah, um, and also and also because uh, the uh, uh, they're working on the Canada Arm and the Canadian Space Agency have really moved away from meteors into uh, other things. Uh, so they're trying to figure out a way to get out of it. And I happened to be in Ottawa uh, talking with some uh, astronomers at the National Research Council. And um, I was having uh, lunch uh, with one of them. And he was just saying, oh, yeah, all the UFO stuff where we really don't want to do this anymore. It would be nice if somebody could take it off our hands. And I said, half jokingly, well, you can always just give them all to me. And he looked at me and said, oh, yeah, yeah, not a bad idea. And that was the last I heard of it um, <laughs> until 1999 um, when I got a phone call uh, from a military base in Canada. And it was uh, the, uh, the, a major of, uh, of, of some particular um, uh, uh, area. And uh, he had said, are you the guy we're supposed to be sending the UFO reports to? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And I started getting the UFO reports. Um, and uh, so from then on until present, I've been getting uh, reports sent to the uh, Department of National Defense, uh, some to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, um, Transport Canada, uh, and uh, even some that are destined for something called Nav Canada. Again, these are sort of Canadian equivalents of the FAA. Um, and uh, some of these reports are, are reports that are given to NORAD. Uh, so I do get some of the NORAD reports as well. Um, and so we have, uh, and the National Research Council of Canada sort of stopped this arrangement with the RCMP in 1995. Um, and we, you know, the, the reports from 82 to 95 are not yet available. 
Um, but they are available if you go to Ottawa and go to the archives and look there. But digitally, they're not available. We're working on that. And then after 95, there's a few years of gaps that I'm working on to, uh, to retrieve. Uh, and then there's the records that we have, uh, which I'm making available um, from 1999 on. And this is why I say you know, the Canadian government has actually been a little more transparent than the United States because we have these reports and they're either available in paper form in the archives or digitally, uh, or in some cases both, right from 1947 right to the present time. And uh, some of the investigations are very, very detailed in, in, in depth. In fact, a few cases have um, three or 400 separate pages of documents uh, of the investigations conducted by the Royal Canadian Air Force and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And it attests to the uh, the determination of the Canadian government to get more involved and try and understand what was going on from a scientific point of view. And recently, now that the National Research Council of Canada is uh, not involved, uh, the responsibility for a lot of the investigations is, uh, seems to be uh, in the uh, sort of the, uh, the proprietary uh, division of uh, Transport Canada, the uh, Canadian FAA, so that uh, pilot reports are filed through there and we have access to those. In fact, uh, in Canada, the term is still UFO. In fact, Transport Canada actually has a has a box for pilots to tick. Have you seen a UFO? Wow. Um, and uh, UAP was, you know, uh, you know, it's an American uh, uh, decision, I suppose, uh, from the United States Air Force or whoever was working on that. I mean, there's been a number of terms that have been bandied about, but in Canada, they're called UFOs. Uh, and we do get reports from pilots reporting UFOs all the time. Um, and uh, up until, I guess, uh, the number of reports has dropped considerably over the past few years, but I would say, you know, in the 90s, uh, not the 90s, the, the 2000s and into the mid 20, 2010s to 2015, 2016, um, pilots and air traffic controllers were regularly reporting UFOs to the Canadian government. You know, it's funny when someone says, when you say to someone the term UAP, the average person out there, they'll say, what's that? And you have to say it's a UFO. Mm -hmm. so why, yes. why don't you just call it a UFO and be done with it? So listen, what are the, um, what people call abductions or experiencers compared to, I know you know there's a lot of comparisons between the United States and Canada. Mm -hmm. How would you say, and I know you did a book on that early on or some at some point, how mm -hmm. would you compare that, the two countries, as far as what people are calling the abductions or experiences? Yeah, um, yeah, that book uh, is uh, titled um, uh, Abductions and Aliens, What's Really Going On? Uh, and what happened was that when uh, abductions were really starting to become a little more common, uh, I had been approached by some uh, people who had had some experiences. Uh, they would come up to me after some of my lectures, for example, and want to talk to me privately, and uh, I would get in touch with them and we'd uh, talk. Uh, and I had started working with a, a clinical psychologist uh, who specialized in uh, doing uh, uh, hypnotherapy, uh, and uh, from a professional level um, to try and better understand what some of the ex people were experiencing. And uh, I know that uh, a lot of people in ufology were getting into uh, 
uh, doing, you know, learning how to do hypnosis themselves and getting involved in support groups. So I very grudgingly started a, a sort of a support group here in Canada. Um, it was based on the, um, you know, some of the more uh, typical uh, support group uh, principles, you know, what's what's said in the group stays in the group and no crosstalk and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And uh, we tried to be as respectful as possible. But I, uh, and I, I guess after talking with a, a number of people who had approached me, I, I decided that ufology was not the best um, place for abductees uh, to, uh, to come forward with their stories. And the reason I say that is because um, a lot of the individuals who had come forward with regard to having UFO experiences were experiencing a lot of anxiety. Uh, They're experiencing some trauma. Um, their lives were very uh, disrupted. And um, it's sort of the, my, my view was, you know, uh, you know, uh, do no harm, sort of the, the physician's uh, mentality that, mm -hmm. I, I thought that the clinical psychologist would be better to uh, deal with people's uh, experiences, especially some. I mean, some were uh, having such terrible anxiety they actually attempted suicide, and that's way out of ufology. Uh, I don't care how good of a therapist you are. I mean, certainly some, Kathy Martin, for example, uh, are prepared for it, but the average, uh, uh, you know, abduction researcher is not, and the average ufologist is not. So I, I said, you know, this is this is not not where I should be uh, working with this. Um, so I, uh, you know, referred people to a clinical psychologist or to other therapists. And actually the support group, you know, uh, chugged on merrily without me and was, uh, you know, uh, you know, doing rather well the last I heard. I don't, I don't know what's happened, uh, you know, uh, come the pandemic, but, uh, you know, I, I think the, the issue is, you know, now that contactees are, almost indistinguishable from abductees. And I mean, there's always been contactees uh, since the 1950s. Uh, the ones who really get a lot of attention at UFO conferences now really are, are um, I would say they're not even as, uh, as interesting as some of the 1950s who really had a little more pizzazz, I suppose, to them. Um, but uh, it's nothing, I haven't heard anything new in terms of uh, contactees and abductees, uh, abductees, in terms of their story content since the 1950s. Um, so I think it's a recurring phenomenon that needs to be addressed within ufology. Uh, as for differences between Canada and the United States, I don't see any difference between contactees and abductees uh, from any country. I think there's certainly gonna be some contamination and some similar stories no matter where you go. Um, and, uh, uh, I, you know, I think the, uh, the phenomenon, uh, you know, it's a separate type of phenomenon within ufology that, that has to be addressed in some way. And I'm not entirely sure what, uh, what branch of science or the humanities needs to be involved. Uh, my friend, a good friend of mine, Dean Eliotto is doing a film on, on experiencers, uh, that should be interesting. And, you know, something is going on in these four people, um, you know, a lot of them are traumatized, mm -hmm. uh, whatever it is that's happening. And um, I've seen them in groups, you know, at, at meetings and helping each other, you know, mm -hmm. which is which is a good thing, I think. Uh, here's a great, I think it's a great question. And uh, from Mary Grace Kirby, what does uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau think about UFOs 
and you can actually call it UFOs in that country. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Does he ever? Does he ever talk about it? Has he ever mentioned it that you know of? As far as I'm aware, uh, Trudeau has never talked about UFOs. However, um, uh, two of his ministers of defense uh, are obviously involved at this point. Um, the uh, Harjan Sajjan, who was the minister of defense who got the briefing on UFOs, um, uh, certainly talked with uh, with him, with Trudeau about it. I, I think there's no question of that. We don't have any documentation of that. But if the minister of defense got a briefing and there, the, there was a suggestion that that in turn was going to be uh, used in a briefing that he was going to give, um, that's certainly possible. The current uh, minister of defense... Um, uh, probably does know because uh, anything that the previous minister uh, would have been briefed on would be part of a package for the incoming uh, minister of defense. So I suspect that those two would know. Uh, also, um, through my own research, I found that uh, UFOs have been mentioned uh, in the House of Commons uh, in Parliament. It would be the equivalent of a House of UFOs being talked about on the floor of uh, Congress. Um, and uh, uh, there, I think something like 40 or 50 times over the past uh, uh, 40 or 50 years that UFOs have been brought up uh, in Parliament. Uh, and curiously, um, you know, there's this uh, congressional briefing uh, that everybody was excited about uh, this year uh, regarding the UFOs. Well, you know, back in 1966, Gerald Ford lobbied for a congressional briefing and got it in 1968. Um, and the result of that congressional hearing was that Blue Book killed everything by uh, closing down in 1969. Let's hope that doesn't the, come the, out of this most uh, yeah. current briefing. But as I say, there had been already a, a congressional briefing that some people seem to have forgotten about, but we actually did this already in the United States. There have been briefings uh, in Canada as well um, there was a briefing to the uh, Canadian Senate, uh, which is, I guess, parallel to the, to the American Senate, um, back in 19... Oh, I'm trying to remember the year that uh, this happened now, in the 60s, anyways, uh, where uh, a presentation was given to the Canadian Senate. Um, and um, in 1967, uh, there was a briefing given to uh, another defense minister, uh, to the chief of defense staff, uh, which probably found its way into parliament as well. And I've actually included the entire set of documents from that in my new book, hmm. because it's so significant that I think people should be more aware um, that the Canadian government uh, had a, a briefing that was presented describing exactly what was going on in Canada with regard to UFOs. That's great. And we haven't really talked about your book yet. No. <laughs> so so and we got a, we have an hour left and a half hour or so we'll be taking calls. So what what initiated this book, this particular book? And uh, there also you mentioned at least one time it's the LAC. What's that stand for again? Library and Archives Canada. Okay. So you're you have access to um, through all these years. Does it, does it take as much work to get one as a FOIA does for the United States, or is it easier access? Um, I would say it's actually easier. Uh, I mean, well, if you look at what John Greenwald uh, does, I mean, he's filing dozens and dozens every day. 
Um, and, uh, you know, he does get his responses uh, quite well. Um, uh, but uh, I, there's a reporter up here in Canada named Daniel Otis, and he's been filing things. He's, he's really new to the UFO game, and he's only been filing for a couple of years. And I think the fastest that he's got a response is a month, mm. which is way faster than I think it's been uh, the experience of Greenwald in the United States. Yes. Um, and uh, the when I file, I I mean, my average is a little worse than his, probably about six months or so. But I set off, I set off three this past weekend, and we'll see how fast those come. I, I'm not holding my breath; those probably won't show up uh, until Christmas or something like that. But um, I, I did. I did file uh, some myself, um, and the the material that I have in the, in my book, uh, for the most part, now I would say ninety percent uh, come from publicly available documents. There you are, yeah, um, and many have been declassified down from secret, from confidential, from restricted, um, and. Um, the Library of Archives Canada has made all these documents um, available online, and a lot of people have downloaded the whole set. Uh, Isaac Coy, for example, and a few others have downloaded the whole set and made them available on, on various websites. But to actually spend time going through all 10,000 documents is a bit of a chore. <laughs> and so I spent some time going through all those documents finding some of the more interesting cases and, and interesting documents and putting them all together in the book. And I, I think we reprint, reprinted about 50 uh, of the documents. Um, and I, I do that because I want to give the readers a chance uh, to look at, to really look at some of the more interesting documents themselves to see what a government document about UFOs really looks like. And um, uh, one of the most interesting sets of documents is what I call uh, the Robertson um, uh, uh, the Robertson report. And people are probably familiar with the Robertson committee. Yeah, 1953. Yeah. Um, and uh, but in Canada there's a Robertson briefing and it was prepared for the um, chief of defense staff, so the the person who works with the Minister of Defense. And um, in reverse to what you know, the the most recent filing for the Minister of Defense, so that we have the the slides, but we don't have the actual documentation of what was said. Um, the briefing in uh, in 1967 by a Canadian um, uh, uh, military officer named named Robertson. Um, he, what we have are, is the document that accompanied the slides, but not the slides themselves. Um, and the document is 28 pages long, and we reproduce all 28 pages in, in the book. Um, because it's so in, amazing uh, that the, this report goes into detail describing uh, six cases that the um, Minister of Defense or the Department of Defense says is not they're not explainable as a matter of fact some of the, the the cases there's actually a line in there that says neither the royal canadian mounted police uh, nor national defense can explain this particular case and when you've got cases like that and they they you know list them in some detail and they do some analysis of some of the other cases de describing the numbers and so forth you know the national defense um and the royal canadian mounted police could not explain 
uh, a number of the cases and the top six are actually given in this briefing that was given to the chief of defense staff uh, and then parlayed to the minister of defense uh, himself. It's remarkable um, and it's a document that sort of negates what the Robertson Committee in the United States did uh, about you know a little bit uh, later, so or a little bit earlier. So it's an uh, amazing set of uh, of papers. Amazing. Well, it's it's great that you you actually are getting this out there. I think that's a that that is a a, a great thing, and you know I mean nothing speaks more than a government document especially when it pertains to ufos i think it's it's a it's really a great thing and someone asked earlier and you know it's all just speculation but they wanted to know what your opinion was of ufos you know what they are and that was a early question early on and you know do you think they're one thing do you think they're a bunch of things yeah, I think that it's not a, a single problem that we're dealing with. Um, I mean, there's no question that most of the UFO reports that, that people uh, make are, you know, they either have explanations or uh, there's not enough information for an explanation or there's possible explanations. Um, in the Canadian UFO survey, for example, we have those four categories. We have explained, uh, unexplained, possible explanation, and insufficient information. Um, and they're almost almost equal numbers, um, although the, the number of unexplained usually goes down um, when you look at, uh, uh, instead of the overall picture over the years, uh, down to every year where we only have about 1% to 5% that remain unexplained, um, even after some uh, some ruling out of some some possible uh, explanations. Um, and, and so I, I think the ones that are unexplained don't necessarily mean aliens from space. Uh, there's no question that some are going to be military operations. In fact, we can uh, um, go back into some uh, files and find cases that uh, you know had been unexplained at the time, uh, with the revelation of documents describing some military uh, maneuvers and so forth, uh, can have explanations. So uh, I think it's a constantly evolving thing. Having said that. Uh, my background in astronomy, uh, you know, uh, allows me to confer with my uh, uh, my colleagues, and um, you know, the our sun is a pretty average star, and um, there are stars that are much older and some that are much younger, uh, and so we ask the question: you know, suppose life evolved on a planet circling a star that has a bit of a jump on us. Um, not just a hundred years or a thousand years, maybe ten thousand, maybe a hundred thousand, maybe a million years. Uh, you know, would they be able to, you know, figure out ways to uh, not break the laws of physics, but perhaps bend the laws of physics and and travel between the stars in ways that we can't even imagine? Uh, you know, that's certainly possible. We don't have any physical evidence, any physical proof that's that's going on. But at the same time, it's it's a possibility that can't be ignored. In fact, I just saw the the new trailer for the new Avatar movies, um, and I didn't know there was one coming out. Yeah, <laughs> there's three or four coming out, um, and you know, Avatar is set on a moon of a planet that's circling. Um, I think it's either Alpha or Beta Centauri, and that's the, the those are the nearest stars to Earth. And there is some speculation that there are planets uh, circling those stars, 
And it's certainly possible that there could be um, an Earth-like planet, uh, uh, Earth-like moon circling those planets. So, you know, Avatar is, you know, sort of the best, the, the best scenario for aliens living very close to us. Um, and whereas the aliens in Avatar, you know, aren't spacefaring, one really just, you know, needs to think in terms of a, a difference of a few hundred thousand years, maybe that they would become spacefaring. And, uh, you know, but it, it puts it in perspective that, you know, the nearest aliens might be very, very close to us. Um, but, uh, you know, who knows? They, they, uh, they might be on the other side of the galaxy. I listened to... Uh, I was at a conference where Mark D'Antonio was speaking, and he has a theory, him and, uh, well, it's between him and Robert Schroeder. I don't know if you've heard of Robert Schroeder. is uh, mm -hmm. science background. Um, so Mark had a talk on basically the possibility of uh, traveling, and God, I'm going to mess this whole thing up, but it was interesting. And like you said, maybe they, they bend the laws of physics. Maybe they discover something in physics we haven't yet. I don't know how, um, if that's, if, you know, if the possibility that they're coming from great distance, they would have to do one or the other, I believe, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And I mean, there's discoveries in physics every day. In fact, yesterday, physicists at CERN discovered uh, a pentacork. And I guess they actually had, they had actually found a pentacork before, but uh, this one is, uh, it's, uh, it's makeup and composition too, or something like that. There's yeah, like yeah. Different names I mean, there's, there, there's new discoveries being made every day, and you know, maybe mm -hmm. who knows? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. The building blocks, you know, uh, how how small do they go? That's really another fascinating. And the whole thing of quantum physics and how things can be interconnected, you know, the entanglement and all that mm -hmm. is just mind blowing because the things. They, they shouldn't make sense, but it, they do somehow, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and that, that may be all tied into this thing too. Who knows? Now, we share uh, some Great Lakes with you. We all, you also have a coastline. What about USO reports in Canada? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no question there are uh, um, objects under the water that are reported in, uh, in Canada as well. Um, you know, uh, we might as well mention Shag Harbor, uh, yeah. that uh, it's described as Canada's Roswell, also happened in 1967, where um, uh, a number of people, uh, including some RCMP officers, had seen an object, a bright object, flying over the uh, over Nova Scotia, uh, heading for the ocean. And um, it, the, the people say it's, you know, people... Uh, the story is that people saw it crash into the uh, ocean. Actually, no one saw it crash into the ocean. Uh, and there's a there's a little asterisk that I'll mention in a second. But uh, no one saw it. They saw it moving over the uh, over the land, and then when the, they got to the uh, to the shore, they could see this bright object on the water. Um, and uh, the RCMP. Um, commandeered uh, some fishing boats. This was like two or three in the morning. Uh, and they uh, got the fishermen to take them out in the boat because they thought that the plane had gone down or some, uh, you know, something had crashed into the ocean. They had to get the rescue operation. Uh, by the time the boats actually got out there, um, the light had gone out, but uh, what remained was a glowing greenish yellowish foam uh, mm -hmm. that was on the surface of the, of the water. 
but nothing could be found found there. Um, from documents that have been recovered, and I'm going back to documents because we this is something that we can attest. By the way, Roswell, the U.S. government says nothing happened at Roswell. Canadian government, not only did something happen at Shag Harbor, there are documents that recommended that Navy uh, skin divers, uh, scuba divers, go down and, and see if they can retrieve whatever crashed down there, and it was described as a UFO. Um, anyway, so they... Uh, they didn't find anything officially, but there's lots and lots of stories that, you know, I, I talked with some uh, uh, people on the shore who said that, yeah, we saw under cover of darkness, the scuba divers drag something out of the water and loaded onto a flatbed truck and carted it away. U.S. Navy, by the way, had its own base not that far away from Shag Harbor in Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. um, but there's lots of stories to that effect. Um, and the asterisk I was going to mention was that um, just um, last year, yeah, just last year, um, Chris Stiles, who uh, one of Canada's uh, leading investigators out in the East Coast, mm -hmm. um, he located um, a woman who said that she was a witness to the object 50-some uh, years ago and uh, said that she did see this thing crash into the water. Um, but wow. that was 50 years ago that she came forward with the story and you know, it, I don't know if I, I'm willing to accept it completely, but it's interesting that we have one witness to something that uh, that happened uh, more than 50 years ago. I didn't realize that no one, I thought, I thought they were calling it a plane crash, possible plane crash, that it went into the water, but the only thing that they saw was it going over the water and then the yellow foam mm -hmm. afterward. Yeah. Yeah, I see. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm going to be up there in Shag Harbor on the first part of October. I'm going to do a, a talk at the convention up there. I'm pretty. Excited well, you're giving a talk at the Shag Harbor UFO Festival. Good. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty excited. Are you going yeah, to be I've there? Been there a couple, I've been there a couple of times. You'll you'll yeah. enjoy your your time. Well, I drove there from Maine. It's the last time I'll ever do that again because you go <laughs> way up and then down. I I stopped and saw Stan, Stan Friedman, but you know you go way way up and then way way down and it right off it's right off maine just a a very short you know i, I by boat it's, it's by ferry it's very short but i made the mistake of doing the 16 hour drive to get there <laughs> yeah yeah in in fact even if you're in nova scotia a lot of people have heard of halifax as the capital of nova scotia yeah it's a four hour drive from the capital of halifax the nearest place you can fly into and it's <laughs> Yeah, it's so not fun. Um, so there was a. I'm not talking about Falcon Lake, but there was a. There was another UFO that uh, I remember. Jordan Bonaparte did a show on it on nighttime podcast, and it was about a mounted police officer looking at it through his telescope or binoculars. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah, he, he had it uh, in that also for quite a while. I think. Yeah. Uh, that uh, that goes back a, a while as well. Um, it was a RCMP officer who was on a shore. Now, was it um, Prince Edward Island or was it New Brunswick? Um, uh, I think it was actually uh, New Brunswick. I, I, I my memory's uh, uh, patchy right now. Um, but yeah, he had see, watched it through binoculars and. Uh, uh, I have to mention the other thing about the Canadian government is not only does the Canadian government 
um, admit that UFOs are, are are in its you know they've been interested in UFOs uh, and that they've investigated where there's lots of documentation and and a lot of agencies have been involved. The Royal Canadian Mint um, has actually struck coins depicting some of the most famous UFO cases in Canada. Right. So the government of Canada uh, recognizes uh, a handful of UFO cases as being of his significant historical and national interest. That's one of them, the one of this RCMP officer. Shag Harbor is another. Falcon Lake, which we haven't got to yet. Um, and uh, there's a case in, uh, in Montreal uh, that, uh, that also, and these are actually silver coins um, yes. legal tender um, and I don't think the US mint has has commemorated uh, UFOs no uh, not but, yet but the Canadian the Canadian government UAP. Is, excuse me it's UAP here UAP oh okay <laughs> yes that's right yeah yeah the, so the Canadian government has, has done that as well and and the, this one of the RC RCMP officer um, uh, is certainly uh, one of the more interesting ones and the thing about these coins they glow in the dark oh, um, perfect yeah. And the, yeah, they're they're just delightful. Radioactive. Uh, James Blackwood, I believe. Let me just see. Uh, yeah. Because yeah, James Blackwood, because he's now known as the Raccoon Whisperer. Do you know? Did you hear about that? <laughs> he, he was originally known as the Raccoon Whisperer, but now oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can see that on YouTube. He has all these raccoons come to his house and he feeds them. It's it's a riot. So. But he had quite the story. That was quite a uh, traumatic sighting, I believe, for him at the time. And uh, he described it so well. I believe there was a tail. This thing had a tail. Um, it was a strange object, if I remember right. Now, I haven't, I heard Jordan's port podcast probably six years ago, so I don't remember it in detail. Mm -hmm. But um, I thought My it was I have a problem with it. Uh oh. With that particular okay. case. And yep. the problem I have is he watched it through binoculars. Yeah. And it was very low on the on the horizon close to the surface of the ocean. And he watched it for several hours. And when I hear somebody watching a UFO through binoculars for a considerable length of time, the first thing I think of is a star or planet. And he was watching straight east over the ocean and um, the atmospheric distortion over the ocean is very, very significant. Sure. Um, and um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm not calling him a liar. There's no question he saw something. Mm -hmm. I suspect that what he saw has an explanation. But uh, nevertheless, it made a profound impact on him. Um, and it occurred at a time when there were, you know, other people who had reported seeing some UFOs as well. So I, you know, that I think contributed to um, his fascination and his determination to look at uh, what he was looking at. Um, but, you know, there's, a, there's some red flags there uh, uh, with me. Um, if I remember right, though, he described in pretty good detail this, this like an object. I thought he said there were lights on it, but maybe I'm Again, yeah, there's no question there were, but I mean, again, he was uh, he was looking at it through binoculars, and I think I asked the question at one point, when was the last time the binoculars were collimated? And apparently that was just a set of binoculars that had been kicking around, and nobody knew when the last time that they were adjusted. So 
I, as I say, there's, I have some, some reservations about it, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, he's a very, very good observer and, uh, you'd think that he would know the difference between stars and planets and something else. Well, you know, there's the, the controversy also about the tur UFO, the Turkey UFO. Mm -hmm. And you, you're familiar with that, Roger Lear. Very was there. Much, yes. <laughs> yeah, and that that could have been a they think could have been a camera anomaly. Supposedly, they're used other more than just one camera, so I'm not sure about that. And that that is some pretty spooky images that came out of those uh, uh, that filming. I don't know. You have looked into it, so I have, and I you know I. I I'd rather save it for another show. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think I'm reading between the lines, but yeah. <laughs> okay. That's fine. And um, yeah, um, I was asked about that on someone else's show. And I, I mentioned that I thought it might've been a camera thing, but not sure. Um, mm. The call number is up. That's 855-472-5483. Bill is standing by. So if you'd like to call in and ask our guest a question. So what else can we learn about your book? Well, I mean, I do have some information there about the Falcon Lake case, and I, I just I, I know there's probably going to be some calls coming in. So very quickly, 1967, a fellow was doing some amateur prospecting. He was a bit of a rock hound. He went into the, the forest, very, very rugged kind of area, and he saw, for all intents and purposes, a Hollywood-style flying saucer uh, come down uh, not far from him. Uh, he, uh, you know, it's disc-shaped uh, dome on top, 35 feet uh, in diameter, 12 feet high, uh, lights coming out of it. He went up and touched the side of it. His rubberized glove melted. Um, when this thing took off, a blast of hot gas hit him in the chest, knock, setting his clothes on fire, setting fire to pine needles. Wow. He eventually made it to a hospital where he was treated for burns. Uh, radiation was found at the site. And the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Royal Canadian Air Force investigated. And in the opinion of the investigators, they had no explanation for what was found. Um, and um, the United States Air Force, uh, in terms of the Condon Committee, came up, investigated, and they decided it wasn't a very good case. Whereas the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Air Force had spent many, many hours investigating and looking uh, at the site and looking at the evidence, decided it could not be explained. But... I have much of those documents in the book too. And the, those burns were pretty, that he had on him, like uh, grill type burns. So they're, they're pretty, pretty bad. He was in the hospital for a while. Did he recover fully from that? Well, he, he, uh, he was sent home and, and did a lot of his recovery at home, but his burns uh, took quite some time to, uh, to fade. Uh, in fact, the burns, on his lower chest, they were kind of in this this checkerboard pattern. Um, the the scar tissue was was you know it was always underneath his uh, his skin. You could always feel those. Uh, he called them his buttons actually, because uh, you could you could feel them like buttons under his skin. Um, and you know, there's no question that he was physically injured. And we have the medical records. We have the records from the RCMP and the Royal Canadian Air Force. We have records um, from officials. Uh, this was a very intensely investigated case, probably more better documented than Roswell. Wow. And so they they came up, they didn't come up with anything, basically. That's the bottom no, line. The, the statement actually on record is that they did not have a satisfactory explanation. Oh, and did he talk about this afterwards or did he 
keep quiet about it or did he did he want to talk about it um he he thought that he actually went to the press because he thought that there was a danger to the public he thought this was some sort of american uh like this was just the beginning of apollo so he thought this was an american test of a flying vehicle um and it was you know that that it was dangerous to try and be out in the woods if these things are going to be flying around um and um then when there was such a, a tremendous interest in this um that uh, they were the family was bothered day and night uh people camped out on their doorstep um and uh he eventually just said enough is enough and uh, the family stopped talking about it and only because uh, i happened to know uh the family myself that um that they uh, agreed to talk with me and i opened the case myself in the 1970s again uh to reinvestigate and we have all this documentation uh three or four hundred pages separate pages of documentation about this particular case wow and so yeah it it's it's one of the ones that always seems to come up you know when when anyone talks about um you know the like major ufo sightings in in canada what or are anywhere some... I, I would oh I yeah would challenge you're right yeah i would challenge right. you to find another case that has three or four pages of government documents documenting the case physical injury to the to the witness witness available to to talk to the media the site is accessible physical evidence found radioactive material found at the site you name it you give me a, another case that's that's documented like that and what was the what was the radioactivity um, level was it was it a very high level unusually high As a matter of fact and we have the documentation of this that the radiation was so high that the, the the part that the government considered closing the area to the public wow and can you remind me what year this was pardon me can you remind me the year please and what this was 1967 was that 57 of the five or 67? No, six, 67, 1967. 67. Okay, because I, I was just trying to think. Um, the only other one you hear about, like Burns, you know, a, a known sighting is the Cash Landrum case, mm -hmm. like that, you know, in the United States. And, you know, there is speculation that that would have been some type of an experimental uh, vehicle. But yeah, in this case, of, yeah. And was that ever something that, was ever thought of in, in this particular case? You know, that was sometime after that. But um, yeah, there are parallels right. that have been have been mentioned. But uh, in terms of government documentation, uh, uh, you know, up until the point where um, Betty and uh, uh, and her her friend, you know, you know, tried to get uh, legal documents uh, regarding uh, what had happened, it uh, the, the government documentation is certainly nowhere near significant. Wow. So again, the lines are open. I'm surprised there's no calls. And that number is 855-472-5483. Feel free to call in with your questions. And I just want to see if there's anything else here in the, in the chat. What are some of the one, other ones you talk about in your book? Well, um, uh, I also talk about the largest piece of UFO ever found. Oh, oh boy. I'm excited to hear about that. Yeah. Well, you know, there's this big interest right now in metamaterials and, yes. uh, you know, the pieces of UFO and 
there, there's you know there's a big debate as to you know where these things come from most of the pieces are, are fairly tiny yeah yes. the one that people mostly see on on photos uh is a layered thing about that big um and the argument is that you know that it was uh, created using a technique that didn't exist at the time it was found or something like that you may hear discussions about the uba tuba fragment um which the the history of that uh, is such as doesn't seem to be actually connected with any UFO case. It, it, there was an anonymous letter that was sent uh, that 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 was received that supposedly talked about it. Um, and so you know to connect to to say that that's proof that it was recovered from a UFO is kind of dubious. So there's a lot of this stuff that, that you know uh, of cases that seem to be uh, of you know questionable origin, but you know supposedly come from a UFO. Well. Um, back in the early 1960s, a large piece of metal was found um, uh, you know, on the, just on the shore of the Ottawa River in Canada. And the su suggestion was that it came from a UFO, a crashed UFO. It was a ton of metal. Uh, and I'm just, just not just using hyperbole. It was a ton of metal. Um, <laughs> And um, uh, this chunk of metal was very, it was difficult to move. Um, in fact, it was part of a, uh, there was a, actually a, um, uh, a chunk of it um, that was actually sent to a foundry to, to melt down. Um, but a, lar a significant large piece, the size of a, I don't know, the size of a, of a washing machine uh, was, uh, was taken and studied and it was analyzed by a number of metallurgists, uh, was studied um, by a chemical laboratory in Canada, and was promoted by a, a number of UFO groups and organizations at the time as being a, a piece of a, uh, of a UFO. And uh, pieces of that particular thing, the original giant chunk, um, has, has been lost. If you can just imagine losing a piece of UFO um, that big. Uh, but little small pieces, size of the metamaterials these days, um, exist in another university's archives and are awaiting testing. Uh, and I document, uh, you know, the story of that. Th that piece was actually uh, examined by um, uh, by Roy Craig from uh, uh, from Project uh, or for, from the Condon Committee. He wasn't all that impressed with it, um, but a lot of other uh, people involved in ufology at the time in the '60s. Uh, we're bound to determine that this was a really good case. Wow, we have a, we have a call. Uh, let me get this ready here. Uh, we have uh, Kevin in Florida. Kevin, you're on the air. Welcome to the show. Great to be on. Uh, I'm getting an echo in here. Oh, try to try to ignore the echo. We'll try we'll try to fix the echo for the next caller. But go ahead and try to. Uh, just move on. I'd like with your to hear your guest's opinion on um, Mr. Heller, the former defense minister of Canada. Mm, Paul Hellier, yeah. My, my opinion? Yeah. He had a number of revelations about UFOs. Yeah. Um, I, I, um, I have my concerns about Paul Hellier. Um, at the time that... Uh, uh, he was defense minister, which was up until the early part of 1967. 
Uh, he had said that uh, no UFO cases of interest uh, ever crossed his desk and he wasn't all that interested. So it was a little surprising that, that in early 2000s he uh, uh, came forward with, uh, with a story that he had been given uh, uh, information by a person, by a source that he never did name um, within the military who assured him that a lot of the UFO stories were true and that the aliens were in contact with, uh, with military uh, people in, uh, in, uh, around the world. Um, he had lost his, um, uh, his access, his, uh, his high-level access to, uh, to information when he uh, ceased being Minister of Defense. Uh, so for 50 years, he really had no information about, uh, uh, about UFOs or what was really being done in the military regarding the UFOs. So I find his stories a little hard to uh, believe. Uh, but a lot of people put a lot of faith in him, although the times that I met him and talked with him, um, I just had a lot of red flags. Any el Anything else, Kevin? Well, as far as the radiation in a UFO report, there was a case in Texas where a couple in a car were burned by radiation. It seems to have an analogy to the incident in Canada. Yeah, that's the Cash Landrum case. We were just talking about that one. Yes. Didn't Betty and Barney Hill have radiation as well? No, I don't think Betty and Barney Hill had radiation. No. Well, the, the trunk of the lid trunk of their car supposedly had something going on, but I'm not sure if it was radiation. I think it was mag some magnetic field. Or yeah, something. magnetic. That's what it was. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I remember the compass sp spun around. Spun around, yeah. Supposedly, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for the call, Kevin. Okay, great. All right, so the line is open, and again, that number is 855-472-5483. Yeah, I mean, those ones that where there are burns and things, and ugh, boy, they're kind of scary. There's, a, there's not, not a tremendous amount of, the, of them, but there are some. Yeah, they're few and far between. The other, I was just going to make another point about uh, Paul Hellyer. Um, he also said that, you know, as, as I said, he, he said that when he was in office, as Minister of Defense, he never, you know, was all that interested in UFOs and didn't see anything that, that was of interest. However, actually, I think I have it in my book, as a matter of fact. Um, in, uh, in 1967, while he was still in office, um, there was a uh, crop circle report. 1967, we beat England by a, a long shot. Uh, and it was actually investigated uh, by the Ministry of National Defense, so, uh, so uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were involved as well. And uh, I have we found the actual report from the minister from the uh, Department of National Defense on an investigation of a crop circle huh. in Canada in 1967. Um, and uh, so crop circles are documented by the military. Here you go. Uh -uh. Uh, and what's interesting is that. Um, there's also a document on file that says there was a ministerial inquiry uh, requested about this particular case, about the crop circle in, in Canada. And at the time, the minister was Paul Hellyer. Hmm. So how could he not have any interesting cases in UFOs and have no comment on UFOs while he was in office when we know for a fact that he actually ordered a ministerial inquiry into the crop circle UFO, uh, that was connected to UFOs. Do you so think that, he just 
do you think he just was keeping it quiet or i mean well, do you it, have well, it, it would be strange to keep it quiet because it's on the public record uh, I see. we have these documents that prove this and these are part of the documents that are part of the library and archives canada collection that are digitally available Oh, wow. Now, would you say that Canada is a little more loose with classifying things like UFOs in the United States? Um, loose. Well, I mean, there's no question. There's there's probably a lot of documents that we don't have access to. And, and uh, I know that over the past 20 or 30 years, more have been released uh, slowly per uh, some, uh, some access to information requests. In fact, access to information requests are are, uh, are being undertaken all the time, and that's how we found out about this briefing for the the current minister, or the then the current minister of defense. Um, so things are being classified, but uh, with requests, the restrictions are being released, and more and more information is coming forward. Um, I mentioned that um, in this briefing, uh, somebody had filed an access information request to this Minister of Defense, and they found, you know, this comment that Chris Rakowski uh, was the one receiving the UFO reports. Um, there was a little blank spot on that particular slide. And so somebody else filed an access to information request to find out what was in that blank spot that had been deleted out of the, that particular slide. And in the second access to information request, um, they got through the classification to find out that it was a picture of me. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? So the access information, when you file for that, as, um, can anyone file? Do you have to be a Canadian citizen? Because I believe you talked about Paul Dean, who lives in Australia, mm -hmm. and he's been getting FOIAs from the United States. Um, yeah, I think... I think that anyone can file from any any country. Um, I think there are restrictions on some documents that you have to be a Canadian citizen to file for some of them, but I don't know which ones. Hmm. And is it as much of a job as it is for for Freedom of Information Act as far as the forms to fill out and the accuracy and all that? Yeah, you have to be very, very specific. Um, there, uh, when I was going through, uh, sort of just like the FOIAs, um, the ATIs, um, there's a list of successful and unsuccessful requests that you can look up. And um, there was one request I, I saw, there was a, a request for all the documents relating to UFOs uh, in a particular government department, and uh, they found zero documents uh, on this particular one anyways and i was looking at it and thinking i actually have documents from this particular department about ufos <laughs> so they <laughs> obviously worded it wrong <laughs> somehow because yeah. I, i've seen others where they do you know they say all documents all correspondence all memos all interviews all you know and you, you have to list all the different departments so it could have been you know they they just missed the the, the right wording and that's what john greenwald goes through all the time you know he he finds out that he has to go through his specific wording and you have to parse it exactly and the semantics really does matter i know he's been doing it for so many years it's 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 quite quite amazing uh they, they probably say oh it's him again <laughs> i think they do i think yeah they do. tens yeah. of thousands of documents you know yeah. from him what a great job he's done 
under that, you know, the whole, uh, the whole thing, getting that information out there. And uh, his website is amazing. How many people go on there a day? It's crazy. Mm-hmm. So good for him for doing that. And what about your blog site? What's, how do you, how do people, I think I have that linked in your show in your. Yeah. My bio. blog is uh, euforum.blogspot.com. U-F-O-R-U-M. Um, I've had that going for many, many years. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I take um, the opportunity to not, a, not just comment on current ufology, but I publish documents on it um, so that if people want to see some interesting stories, uh, I uh, will often publish details of the UFO cases that we receive. Um, and some of them are, are quite fascinating uh, uh, to, to read. Um, and, you know, I, I also have things like the top 10 most interesting Canadian UFO cases, the top um, 10 most unexplained UFO cases, and then cases from across uh, the, the country, places to visit for, uh, for holidays. You know, you're going to be coming up to Canada uh, in October. Um, you know, they're at, in Shag Harbor, there's a, the UFO museum there. Um, there's places right across uh, the country that you can visit. There's a UFO landing pad in St. Paul, Alberta, with the UFO, right. with the UFO yeah. museum. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, there's no one's know, ever they, landed there yet, though. Uh, no, they yeah. haven't. Darn it. Yeah. Darn it. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, you know, there's there's places right across the country that that you can visit that have a, a UFO or a mysterious connection. Well, let's hear. We'll do a little bit of a lightning round maybe we've got uh, about uh eight minutes left uh let's hear a couple of the most unexplained and then uh the top the top 10 if you can kind of go through um i don't know if you need to look at your notes no oh. <laughs> yeah, well off the top of my head we're going to yeah. talk about falcon lake and we've yeah. already talked about that shag harbor is, is quite interesting um there was a um uh, uh the 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 UFO um, ring, the uh, the crop circle in Duhamel, Alberta in 1967. Um, and I'm just going for the top six that were in this uh, Robertson briefing. There were two cases, uh, radar cases, that are also included in that, that uh, happened in, I'm trying to remember whether they were 66 or 67, where um, uh, military base radars were uh, had picked up these objects and uh, they verified that the uh, system was functioning completely. They were not radar angels. It was not related to weather, not related to insects or birds. Uh, and so they were noted as, as being very significant. Um, uh, there was a, a photographic case in Calgary, uh, sorry, not in Calgary, but uh, west of Calgary, Alberta, uh, where uh, a disc was, uh, was seen moving in the sky. Uh, two photographs were taken. Uh, the, uh, the case, uh, was investigated by, uh, the Canadian Air Force and RCMP. And also, this was also included in Condon, uh, where, uh, it, the, the photos seemed to be bona fide and there was no immediate explanation. Uh, there were cases out in, uh, in, uh, British Columbia. Fascinating case that a, a film was actually made about it, um, uh, called Spaceman where a fellow named Granger Taylor was uh, really interested in UFOs to the point where he um, built kind of a, a model of a UFO uh, in his backyard. And uh, oh, yeah. it was actually quite a large little, yeah. uh, little 
camper and he ended up, uh, you know, living in it <laughs> or spending yeah. some time in it. Uh, and he was convinced that the aliens were contacting him and that they were going to be landing. Uh, one day, uh, one night, he said goodbye to his family, uh, left yeah. a note behind that the aliens were going to be taking him. And he was never heard of again. That's right. Yeah, I remember um, that story. Yeah, it, it, you know, there's some uh, some great stories. As I say, it turned it into a, a film, which is very very moving. It's a it's a a, 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 a very emotional movie um, that uh, oh, I don't I think very many people have seen. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, called Spaceman. Uh, so there's a, a lot of uh, you know really curious cases right across Canada that uh, that are worth checking into and that have been documented. And I, I want to emphasize they're documented. You know, these are not necessarily just yeah. things that, you know, people uh, say they've seen and, and that's the last of it. There are, you know, government documents galore. I mentioned that, you know, almost 10,000 uh, in the Library and Archives Canada that they've digitized. Um, you know, I've, I've just finished digitizing uh, 250 or 300 cases that are going to be made available that are not part of that set. And we're working on many, many more. So, uh, you know, and that's Canada. We're still waiting to hear exactly what is what's been going on from the United States. We heard, in fact, somebody asked me, "What about the 144 that the UFP task force uh, couldn't explain?" Um, it's not quite true that they couldn't explain it. What they said was they um, that the information wasn't sufficient to uh, to uh, adequately explain it. I forget the the, the wording in the UFP task force report. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what that meant is that they probably had an idea that it was an aircraft or a drone or a balloon or something, but they couldn't identify which aircraft or balloon. Um, but nevertheless, where's the data on those 144? You know, we right. would like to know date, time, location, who saw it, how did it move? You know, everything you need in a standard UFO report. We don't have anything like that so far from... Uh, you know what's been produced so uh we have every right to demand a little bit more information that uh, and it's not forthcoming with we still don't have uh, even the information on the nimitz videos we know that uh, that yeah. two of the videos from the navy series um are from the same event from the same the same time why were they cut in, in half what happened in between mm -hmm. um uh, you know, what about some of the other data? Uh, you know, we have the, the pilot uh, audio, but doesn't seem to match the what's what's being seen on the on the film. What is really going on? We want all the data. We want the information. That would be nice. Um, going back to the radar case back in 1967, I believe you said. Um, maybe I have the year wrong. I'm not mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. But was that the one where it was at a very, very high speed, unexplainable speed? Um, I think it was moving very fast. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, because uh, if I remember right now, maybe way off, I remember hearing about this a long time ago, that it was a radar case, and it was over 2000 miles an hour in the 60s. Um, am I getting that? I, I, I'm trying to remember, you know, off the top of my head, which, you know, whether it was a, whether it was the, the, uh, you know, two thousand miles an hour or something like that. I'm I'm fanning through my book right now, trying to find the actual. <laughs> so yeah, I'll put you the picture of your book up one more time. So it's Canada's UFOs declassified, and uh, and MJ Anias uh, wrote the uh, forward in that. Great yes. guy. Whoops. Yeah. What did I do? Uh, Unidentified radar returns. Sixth uh, of July, nineteen sixty-seven. Unidentified radar target was tracked through seven sweeps of the radar witnessed by three controllers and two technicians. 
radar plots show that this target increased from a speed of 720 knots to 3,600 knots in one minute and 10 seconds. Yeah, so it was even faster than I thought. Yeah. And yeah. knots are and I, uh, and that's about 4,000 miles an hour. That's the document. We actually have the document. <laughs> yeah, that's excellent. I love the, the document part of this yeah. whole thing. I'm going to have to get that book myself. So, Chris, as always, it's a great pleasure to speak with you. I've really, really enjoyed tonight, as I always have every time we talk. Thanks, so, Martin. I guess we've baffled everybody. That's why they have no questions. So <laughs> I guess so. So uh, I hope to have you back on again, and good luck with this book. I hope it goes really well for you. Thank you. All right. Take care now. You too. Bye. Bye. All right, everyone. So thank you so much, and uh, remember that uh, – the blog this week, again, it's by uh, Michael Lauk instead of our usual from Charles. He's out west uh, doing some research. Uh, this is Otis T. Carr, the man who patented saucers. And next week, we're back with uh, Patrick Jackson from the UK. I'm not, I can't remember what that uh, discussion is going to be about, but um, I do believe it's going to be a great show as uh, we've been lucky to have some good ones this year. And I do appreciate everyone that uh, follows the show and comes back every week. And um, it's been a real pleasure to do this. And I, I'm stalling time because I'm trying to get to the right screen here. All right, everyone. So we'll see you next week. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky.